0: this clip here. There we go. I think we got it. Morning. It is good to be here with you guys. I want to thank you first of all for the opportunity to come uh, open up God's word with you this morning and talk through that a little bit. But but more than that to thank you uh, for the the partnership that this church has had with our ministry for a long time. Longer than I've been there. As Jared said, I I've, I've been at the Table/Focus for 10 years now and and since long before that, First Church has been supporting us financially and praying for us and sending students to us. And, and so um, really grateful for the role you play in, in helping us reach students at Stillwater and always grateful for a chance to come uh, meet those in one of our partnering churches. I get to be, I guess, out in the lobby after this. And, and if you've got students coming to OSU or anything like that, I'd love to meet you and introduce myself to you and, and get to know them maybe a little bit. Uh, good to be here with you. So about a month and a half ago, I'm out on a bike ride with my kids. And uh, we, I, I attend Sunnybrook Christian Church there in Stillwater, and our house sits literally like right around the corner from the building there, about a five-minute walk. And so from time to time, I'll take my kids and they'll grab their bikes or their scooters and we'll go around the corner there and go up to Sunnybrook and we'll play around on the playground for a little bit and then come back. And this was one of those days where we had done that. It was one of those cool, uh, cool Saturdays early in spring, just cool enough that you wear your jacket when you first go out, but as soon as you get kind of playing and get warmed up, everybody wants to take their jackets off. So we go up there, we play around on the playgrounds for a little bit, and then as we're leaving, we, we get ready to head out and all the kids, they don't want to wear their jackets anymore they're kind of hot so they hand them to me and we start making our way back to the house um, now, the issue for me every time we go bike riding, and those of you who have kids, you may know this, but the issue every time we go bike riding is I want to keep my eyes on all of them, but they're all at different age levels, which means they're all at different riding speeds, right? So I've got an eight-year-old Ella, and I've got a six-year-old boy named Hudson, and a four-year-old named Hadley, and Hadley particularly is always a little bit kind of behind. She's still on the training wheels, and every now and then her bike will kind of stall out, and she needs help getting going a little bit, while as the older two, Ella and Hudson, Um, consider every bike ride a race, right? And so they've got to try and beat each other back there. And so I'm always, I want to be able to watch out for all of them and make sure they're not flying out into traffic or whatever, but I'm always kind of torn between these two. And... And particularly on this day, it was one of those days where Hadley got kind of stuck there. And so I had to turn back around and kind of let go of all the jackets and get her going, get some momentum going. And so I get her sent, and then I go over and I scoop up the jackets, and I look up, and my, my older two are way out there in front of me, headed out towards kind of the street that, are, that goes into our neighborhood, and they are way out. So I yell out for them to slow down and, and to wait for me, but it's too late. They're already like out of earshot, and they're moving. So now I got to move. So I gather up all the jackets and and this is the part I haven't told you yet that I don't actually have a bicycle. I don't own a bike. And so generally when we go out on these things in order to kind of keep up and not expend all my energy, I'll grab one of the kids scooters um, to get on. Just kind of do that and it helps me kind of keep with them, save a little bit of energy. I look a little ridiculous riding a little kid's scooter around, um, but it saves me a little bit of energy so I don't have to sprint in situations like this to keep up with them, right? So I grab this scooter, and uh, on this particular day, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but I happen to grab Hadley's, the four-year-olds, which is this um, pink and purple and white scooter with lights on it that lights up while you're riding. So I look um, especially ridiculous to all the cars driving by on Richmond Road on this day, And it's about to get worse, because I grab the jackets, and I remember, I think I had them in my right hand, and I've got my uh, hands on the handlebars on my left hand, and I'm I'm pumping, I'm getting this thing going pretty fast. And right about the time I hit peak speed, uh, the left handle on this scooter, for whatever reason, just pops off. And, and I'd like to tell you that out of my kind of superior agility and athleticism that I at least rode it out for a few seconds before kind of softly tumbling out into the grass, but no such thing happened. Like the, the second that that left handle popped off, I went flying and jackets were going everywhere and I was doing this sort of sideways Superman dive out over the pavement And I hit the ground on my left side, and I remember particularly my arm and my hip taking kind of the worst of it and hurting really bad, but I'm still thinking, you know, know, my kids are up there, so I kind of get up and I grab all the jackets and I grab the scooter and I start to sprint slash limp forward to try and catch up with them. And as I do that, Hadley has gotten out in front a little ways, which is all right because I can kind of catch up with her. But then I see her out in the distance accidentally taking her bike up over a curb. And then so she falls down out kind of in the middle of the street a little bit. So now she's down and I'm chasing after her. And I look down and there's blood running down my arm because I've busted that open. And I'm trying to catch up and I'm in like complete panic, complete chaos. Fortunately, there was a a gentleman, a friend of ours from our church who actually lives in this neighborhood as well. And unbeknownst to me, he had, from around the corner as he was coming out of the neighborhood, he saw my two older kids riding and thought it was strange that they were by themselves. So he kind of stopped there and, and watched traffic and made sure they got around into the driveway. And then he saw Hadley fall down, and so he pulled up with his truck right as I got there, and we were able to load everything up into his truck, and he took us back Um, to the house. And so everything ended up working out all right. But it was about 45 seconds of complete chaos. And and here's, here's kind of the weird thing about that whole situation. Is In that moment, in those 45 seconds, about 100 thoughts ran through my mind. You know how that works, right? I'm thinking about, A, how bad my arm and my hip hurts, and I'm thinking about my two older kids up there that I can hardly see anymore, and I'm trying to catch up to them, and I'm thinking about getting all the jackets, and, of course, I'm thinking about Hadley as she falls down, and as I'm running, I'm thinking about not getting blood on the jackets and on myself and all of those things. But you want to know the very first thought that went through my mind out of all of those things? It was really just this very brief moment, just in there in a flash, and then it went away. But the first thing going through my mind, as actually before I even hit the ground, as I'm in the air, it was like it was happening in slow motion, the first thought that ran through my mind was, man, I bet I look really stupid to all these cars that are driving by right now. Like this 34-year-old man wiping out on a little girl's scooter out on the concrete, jackets going all over the place. I bet I look absolutely ridiculous to these people. And then that kind of thought left and I went on and did my thing. But I thought back on that later as to how odd that is, how weird that is, that in the middle of this kind of crisis situation with all of these crazy things going on, that the first thing going through my mind is I wonder what people think of me right now. I say that that's odd, I say that that's strange, in reality, it's not that strange for me. Um, Confession, I am a bit of a a people pleaser by nature. And so I I tend to be that kind of person who wants people to uh, be pleased with me, I want people to like me, I I, want to make people happy, and so more often than I care to admit, I find that kind of thought, what do people think of me right now, running through my mind. And there's some of you out there that can identify with that, right? Some of you have that same personality that I had, that from the time you were little, you can remember always just wanting to please people, wanting to be liked, wanting, wanting to know that people are happy with you and, and, and okay with you. And Actually, I think all of us have that to some degree. All of us care what people think to some degree. Now, you may not be a people pleaser. It may not matter to you very much whether people like you or not, but my guess is That you at least like the idea of people being impressed with you, of thinking highly of you, uh, of seeing you and going, man, that guy, that girl, they've got it all together. To be like that. Uh, You know, I think there's actually something that's somewhat normal and, and, and natural, maybe even healthy about this to some degree. Like at its most pure and unadulterated level, I think this desire for the approval of people, I I think specifically of little kids. You know how little kids will bring like a a coloring, a picture that they colored to their parents and hand it to them, And, and the way a kid's face just beams and they grin from ear to ear when that parent says, oh, buddy, I love it. It's so great. Thank you. Like that right there, That's, that is a good and right and pure thing. A, a, par- a, a kid who loves to make their parent proud, who wants the approval of the parents that they love so much. But the problem is that for many of us, or most of us, that, that natural desire in us turns into a, uh, to an unhealthy need. To not just have the approval of a few close people around us, but to kind of have the approval of most people to be liked, to be impressive, to be well thought of by most people around us. It doesn't take very long for that little kid when they grow up to start to realize as they get older that there are certain things I can do. If I dress a certain way or if I engage in certain activities or if I hang out with a certain group of people, that people will like me more. And so we plan our lives accordingly. But, but when we grow up, we don't ever really grow out of that. We just move on to more grown-up ways of doing that. More grown-up ways of being impressive or being liked, having the bigger, the nice house, having uh, the really nice job and being very successful in what we do, or, or being that mom that's kind of the fun mom that all the moms look at and go, man, if I could be like her and, and have it together like her. We all find ourselves trying to do that. People throughout history have been doing that for, for all of history. And, and there are a number of people who have discovered over time that one of the best ways to do this is not simply by being nice or by being funny or, or by being um, successful, but one of the greatest ways to do this is by being good. By being a good person, by being an upstanding citizen in some cultures, by being very religious. That that doesn't work really so much in our culture today. We might use a word like spiritual, to be spiritual. When you're that kind of person, people often stand up and take notice. And that guy, that guy is committed. That girl really loves the Lord. That, That person's always serving, always doing these things, and it's a great way for people to see us particularly in Jesus' day, in a culture that was highly religious. Those who could be the most religious, who could show themselves to be the most devoted, those are the ones that everybody looked at in the synagogues, that everybody took note of on the street corners, that everybody said to be like them. But not only is being good and being righteous a really good way to get noticed, it's also a really dangerous way. For two reasons, first of all, it takes the very purpose of our good deeds, it takes the very purpose of obedience and devotion, and it turns it on its head. Just a few weeks ago in Matthew 5, you guys talked about this, I believe it was Jared preaching and being salt and light, where Jesus says that we ought to do our good deeds before others in order that they might see those deeds and then glorify our Father in heaven. But this kind of activity makes those deeds all about glorifying us. And the other reason it's so dangerous is because, because not only can we deceive others when we live this way, but the truth is we can kind of deceive ourselves as well. I mean, after all, I'm supposed to be a good person, right? Right? After all, I'm doing these things because the Bible says. I'm doing these things because that's what God wants from me. And I think we can often deceive ourselves into not knowing our own hearts, not knowing our own motivation behind the good deeds or the right things that we do. Jesus is aware of this. And so he confronts this head on in the sixth chapter of Matthew. In the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, that's where we're going to be today. Chapter 6, the first 18 verses. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Starting in verse 1, this is what Jesus says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, that right there is the sermon in two sentences. That's Jesus' whole point and my whole point in two sentences summed up right there. What he's going to do from here on out is simply explain that further by breaking it down into three different examples. These three different forms of righteousness or good deeds that were very highly thought of and a very important part of the Jewish religion. That is giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And he's going to address each one of these three things specifically. So let's take a look at them real quick. In verse uh, 2, he says here, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, pay attention here to the pattern that was just given for us because it's going to come up over and over again on each of these issues. He's going to say the same basic three things. He's going to, first of all, give an example of a good deed of righteousness. In this particular case, giving to the poor. And then second, he's going to give a negative, uh, a negative aspect of that to avoid. Do not do it like the hypocrites do in order to be seen. He's going to say that every time. And then he's going to give a positive aspect. But when you do that, do it in secret so that your father who sees will reward you. He starts here with almsgiving, which was a pillar of the Jewish religion, of the Jewish faith. In a first century agrarian society, a society that didn't have social security and didn't have welfare, people, the poorest of the poor, those with disabilities, were absolutely dependent on the generosity of their fellow citizens and this was a huge part of what it was to be a follower to be a a Jew in that day in fact around the temple there people kind of lined up the poor because they knew that like a, one major aspect of your worship as you went to the temple to worship was to be able to also be generous with your money and give to the poor, give to those in need. In fact, inside the temple court there was this box where you could actually go and just put your coins in there and it had this kind of big trumpet thing there. You would put your coins in there and that money could be distributed to the poor because they knew when you went to the temple to worship, part of that is generosity. Part of that is giving money away. And of course, people knew that that was also a really good way to be noticed. Because if giving to the poor was something that shows your devotion, and when people see you doing that, that can really bring attention to you. People really see you as a great person for doing that. Actually, even in our culture today, even people who aren't religious, we know that this idea of being known as a generous person, being a philanthropist, that's, like, that's a pretty big title to give to somebody. Someone who's known for maybe having lots of money, but also being really generous with it and giving it away. We don't all want to be generous, but we all want to be known as generous. And and people know this. That's why when someone gives to a particular cause, a charity, or a university, or a church, one of the most common things we do is we put their name somewhere, right? They give a particularly big gift, and we'll put their name on the side of the building. We'll put their name on a plaque. We'll put their name in some sort of publication because we know that people are more likely to give when they are going to be noticed for doing it. Jesus says do not go in and sound the trumpet whenever you give your money Some scholars think that he's actually talking about that box I just mentioned in the temple that, that the opening of this box had this big kind of trumpet-like shape and it was made out of metal And so when you throw your metal coins in there, it makes this clinging sound real loud And, and you can imagine somebody going in there with a bag and just pouring a big bag of coins And everybody in the temple courts turning and looking at them and going, wow Jesus says, though, that when they do that, regardless of whether he's talking about the box or not, he says, those who do that to be seen, there's a problem with that. He says, here's the good news, actually. If you are doing that to be seen, the good news is you're going to get it. People more than likely will notice. People more than likely will look at you, will take note. The bad news is that that's all you're going to get that you'll miss out on something greater, that you'll miss out on the reward that your father had for you. Had you been able to do that in secret? Had you been able to do that with a pure heart and pure motives? He continues on with the issue of prayer in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So the focus here is on prayer, but you notice that exact same pattern. The example, prayer, the negative aspect to avoid, like the hypocrites to be seen, and the positive aspect, pray in your room in secret, and your Father who sees will reward you. Now, Jesus multiple times in his ministry prays in public. And so do the early Christians, so does the early church. So we know that the problem is not praying in public. Otherwise what Dale just did here a few minutes ago would be a bad thing, right? The problem is not praying in public. And that that should be stated for all of these things. Jesus doesn't have a problem with things happening in public. He's after our hearts. He's talking about the motivation behind it. And so I think Jesus would say it is totally okay to stand up in front of other people and pray, but be careful because in our human, broken, sinful hearts, any time we stand up in front and start to do things like pray or worship or preach or teach, that there is always lurking within us that desire to not just please our Father but to impress those that, that, that are listening to us, that hear us speaking and hear us talking. That temptation is always there. In second grade, I had this teacher. She was my favorite teacher in grade school, Miss Johnson, and I loved her. She was so sweet and kind. I went to this small Christian school there in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and one of the things I remember about Miss Johnson is she finished all of her prayers the same way. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. And I remember thinking when I was a kid that that sounded so spiritual and so awesome and I'm sure Miss Johnson wasn't doing it for me to think that but I sure thought that and so I thought you know what that would probably be a great way for me to start praying and so for years I finished all my prayers with that in your son's precious name it just sounds like I just love him so much and love his name so much and and I even remember teachers like in in one class this teacher in my mind at least I I felt like he always called on me to pray more than any of the other students and I was convinced it was because of the awesome ending that I did in all of my prayers because I have said in your son's precious name, and so of course he's going to call on me. I look back on that now, and I realize how silly that was to think like that and, and how wrong that was to try and get attention like that. But, but I know that maybe in some more mature ways, the same temptation faces me sometimes. There are times when I finish praying in a room full of people, and almost immediately I can feel God saying to me, now was, was that for them or was that for me? I have to be aware of those things, knowing that there is always a pull in me to try to impress, to try to please those around me. He continues in verse 7, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now you may have noticed that we just broke the pattern here. That that whole pattern of example and then don't pray or don't do this like the hypocrites who want to be seen. He doesn't say that here. Uh, Most of the chapter or most of the section he's going to do that. But here the, the example is not hypocrites but it is pagans or Gentiles. And the thing to avoid is not praying to be seen but praying like babbling on and on in order to get your father to hear you. So Jesus is kind of changing things up here and taking a little bit of a left turn before he goes back to the original pattern. Right now, he's going to give some practical instruction on prayer in one of the most famous, one of the most recognizable uh, sections of Scripture in history, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Here's what he says, verse 9, This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you give other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins." Now, you're going to have to forgive me for this. I, I, I wish that we had more time to dig into that prayer today. If we had an hour, we'd spend time walking through this beautiful prayer and this beautiful kind of instruction for us as to how we pray. We just don't have that time. We've got to move on and cover the rest of this. Here's the question I want us to ask, though, briefly before we step ahead, is why does Jesus say this here? I'm not asking why he says it. I know why he says it because this is an incredible example of how we ought to pray. I'm just learning in the last year of my life how beautiful and how, um, how helpful it is to pray in the model that Jesus gave us. So I'm not asking why he said it. I'm asking why he says it here. In the middle of this passage that is all about hidden righteousness and trying to do your righteous deeds in secret and not to be seen by others, why does Jesus break away from that temporarily and start giving practical instruction on prayer? Actually, a better place, you could argue, would have been Matthew 7. In just a chapter from now, Jesus is going to go into a little section on prayer. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and then you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. That would have been a great place to put the Lord's Prayer. But instead, he puts it here. Why? Put that in your back pocket for a minute, and we'll come back and try to answer that in just a bit. For now, I want to move on to our last of the three examples, which is fasting. Verse 16. So now we see Jesus return back to that original pattern. Don't do this like the hypocrites who want to be seen. Now, of the three things, giving to the poor, and prayer, and fasting, this third one honestly seems like it would be the least applicable to us, right? Like, in our day and age, the the big danger is not that there are too many of us who try to fast a lot and try to impress people by how much we fast, right? In our day and age, the bigger issue is that basically none of us ever do this. And, and listen, the New Testament never commands that we need to fast, but Jesus does seem to assume that we will. He says here in this passage, not if you fast, but when you fast. And there's another section just a few chapters later in Matthew 9 where Jesus will say that my disciples do not fast while I am here on earth with them, but when I leave, when I depart, they will fast. My followers will fast. And so he seems to expect that we will I think probably the reason that you and I don't fast all that often, that our culture does not partake in this very often, is one of two things. First of all, it's hard, right? Straightforward. Just, listen, I get hangry when I get lunch a little bit late. So why in the world would I try to skip it, right? It's hard to do those things. But more than that, I think the bigger issue is we just don't understand it. We don't understand what the point is, what the purpose of it is. The idea behind fasting As near as I'm able to tell, as I've experienced it a little bit myself, though not nearly as much as I would like to or should have, and as I've tried to read a little bit on it, the idea behind fasting is it is a physical, tangible way to say both to God and to ourselves, Lord, I want you and your gifts more than even food more than even the basic necessities of life. I want you more than food or more than TV or more than social media or whatever it is I might be giving up. I want that more. And, and in that way, it becomes a bit of a, I've heard it said, a physical exclamation point to our prayers, kind of an intensification of our prayers, a way of saying, no, this is really what I am after, Lord. Now, the Jews, sorry, my mic there, the Jews understood this And so fasting was a more regular thing for them. They were actually required to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement as a sign of humility and and brokenness over their sin, But, but many of them fasted more than that. In fact, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Every Monday and every Thursday they fasted, and they were proud of that, and many of them were sure to make it known to everybody that they were doing that by apparently making themselves look like extra exhausted to look just famished and worn out so people could look at them and go, oh, they must be fasting today. They're so committed. They're so spiritual. And Jesus, just like in every one of these other things, he says, the issue is that's not an intensification of your prayer to seek God. That's merely an intensification of seeking attention. You're not after God and his gifts. You're after the attention and the approval of others. And just like all, he says, you'll get it, but you won't get what matters most. You will not get God and his rewards. That word there, rewards, it's been coming up a lot, hasn't it? Over and over again, Jesus says, if you will do these things in secret with right motivation, your Father who sees will reward you. What does he mean by that? Jesus doesn't give us a specific answer And so we we have to kind of figure this out a little bit And so there have been a lot of guesses made Some people think that maybe it has to do with like Material, physical blessings here, more money or bigger houses Now, that does not seem to match up with any other teaching of Jesus or anywhere else in the New Testament So I don't think that that's what Jesus is getting at here Some people think he's talking about future rewards that will take place like in heaven that we might get And and maybe there's something to that But it seems to me that he's talking about something more present tense Something we can experience now And I think most naturally, the the natural context of this passage seems to give us the answer. What is it that the hypocrites get? What is their reward when they do all of their righteous acts to be seen? Their reward is the approval of man. And so then what is the reward of those who do do these things not to be seen, but for God to be obedient, to honor him? I think most naturally their reward is the approval of God for him to look at them and be pleased with them, to delight in them, to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And if, and if that reward to you maybe sounds a little cheap, if to us that doesn't really sound like maybe it's fully worth it, but we would never say that, I would suggest to you that that's because you and I, we don't fully understand how important that is that you and I don't understand that this, this idea of God looking at us and saying, I am pleased, do you realize that that is what you were made for? That down to the core of your being, you were made to know and be known by God, to love and be loved by God, and to obey him and to please him. In fact, I would argue that all of our clamoring about to be seen and to be impressive to people and to have man's approval of us, all that really is is the natural outworking of a heart that was made to please someone greater. You think about that kid handing the picture to their parents and getting so excited when their parents uh, love the picture and are proud of them. That's because you and I were made to, to please those who love us and are over us and care for us. And why not? It seems like the most important would be the person who loves us ultimately, the person who created us, the person who made us for His glory. We were made to please Him, and I believe we will find our greatest joy when we know what it is to please God. I should step back and just say, that's not something we figure out ourselves. That's not something that we just muster up because of our own goodness within us. No, that is something that is only supplied to us by Jesus. It is his death and his resurrection that that makes us the new kind of people who are able to live the kingdom lives described in the Sermon on the Mount. His Holy Spirit at work in us, working out a righteousness that God delights in and is pleased in. Now, one question left unanswered. And that is, what do we do with verses seventeen through, or 7 through 15? That whole Lord's Prayer section, why is it here in this text? What does it have to do with hidden righteousness? What is the common theme between it and all of these other teachings that Jesus gives in chapter 6? You know what I think it is? As I've read through this, I, I think... But the common thread between this whole section is trust. Specifically, trust in the Father. Now, that word actually comes up more than any other word in this Father. Trusting your Father who sees. That comes up over and over again. And, and the whole Lord's Prayer section, the whole purpose of that is to say, you do not have to try to manipulate God to get him to hear you by saying things over and over again or by blabbering on and on to get his attention. No, no, no. He's your Father. So you can trust that he already knows what you need, and you can trust that he cares for you, that he's able to take care of you. That's why Jesus says you can start your prayers with this, your kingdom come and your will be done because you can trust that what he wants is ultimately what is best. You can trust him to provide your daily bread. You can trust him to forgive you. You can trust him to lead you not into temptation. And I think it's that same issue of trust in the Father that actually is at the root of all of Jesus' instructions about hidden righteousness. Righteousness. See, I think what Jesus is saying to us when he talks about prayer and fasting and and giving to the poor and all kinds of other issues is when you do good and right things to please your Father, when you do good and right things to honor and obey him, even if no one else sees... If no one ever notices, if you serve thanklessly in the nursery for years and you never get a pat on the back and you never get a congratulations and nobody ever looks to you and goes, man, that is the kind of person I want to be like, Jesus says, know this, that your father sees that, that he sees that, and that he is pleased with that. I think that most of my clamoring to try and get the attention of other people, when I try to impress people or please people, particularly by doing good works, by doing good things, most of that stems from a failure to trust in God. A failure to trust either one, that he sees, or two, that he rewards, or three, that that reward is worth it. Hebrews 11.6 says this, that anyone who would come after God must believe that he exists and that he earnestly rewards those who seek him, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And the consistent message of the New Testament is this, that it is worth it, that what he offers to you, his love, that what he offers to you, his delight in you, his presence is totally worth it. So the question for us this morning is, is, what do we want? Because Jesus says, whatever you want, you'll probably have. If what you want is to impress people, if what you want is to be noticed, if what you want is for people to look at you and admire you and to have all their approval, Jesus says, you can probably get it. But that's all you'll get and you'll spend your life clamoring for more and more of it because you will not be getting what you were ultimately made for, the approval and the delight of your Creator and your Father. But if your desire is to please Him, and to serve Him, regardless of whether anybody else ever notices it, regardless of whether anybody else ever thinks anything highly of you, whether whether anybody else ever knows, your Father knows, and to be known by Him and to be delighted in for your obedience and trying to please Him—that is reward that will always be worth it. Now, at the risk of um, trying to sound impressive, can I close us with prayer? Dear Father, you know my heart, and uh, you you know how deep this runs in me, and you know how deep this may run in each and every one of us, this desire to, to gain attention and glory for ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see where we are blind to that, even in our own hearts and in our own minds and lives that your Holy Spirit would create a new kind of desire that longs to please you first and foremost, whether we ever get any attention or claim for that. And I pray that for each one of us, that as we seek to obey you, that you would help us to experience more and more of the joy that comes in pleasing you, that you would be honored by that, and we would grow up into the kind of people that you meant for us to be. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.